1: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Henry K. Miller about his book, The First True Hitchcock, The Making of a Filmmaker. The book was published in 2022 by University of California Press. In the book, Miller discusses The Lodger, one of Hitchcock's earliest films, as he mentions Hitchcock himself considered the silent movie his first true Hitchcock film. We discussed the kind of storytelling and filmmaking methods used in the making of The Lodger and make comparisons to some of his later masterpieces. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Henry K. Miller. Hi, Henry. How are you?
0: Hi. I'm good, thank you.
1: Well, I'm talking to Henry K. Miller, the author of the book, The First True Hitchcock, The Making of a Filmmaker. The book is scheduled to be published by University of California Press in uh, January of 2022. We're talking about a month before that, but that's good because uh, obviously um, it'll—you know we're going to have the interview come out right at the time of the release, so this will be some good information for those of you who are interested, and I suspect there's a lot of folks who listen to the New Books and Film podcast who might be interested. I have done a number of Hitchcock-related books, so... We can add this to the list. So Henry, before we talk more about the first off the the first true Hitchcock is obviously the the, the film The Lodger, uh, a silent film, and we're going to talk about it in depth, obviously. But I wanted to mention that right up front, um, even though and in the cover is great. I mean, it literally has a picture from uh, that clearly identifies it pretty well. But before we go into more depth, let's talk a little bit about your background. Obviously, you've uh, been involved in writing and studying film for a long time. What first off led you to decide that that was something you wanted to do? And secondly, as you know as we talk, where did you first learn about Hitchcock? Obviously, um, he died in 1980, and, and so but his films are still well renowned, but what led him what led you to decide that Hitchcock was somebody you wanted to spend more time learning about?
0: Yes, so I'm, I'm, I'm in England, and it's possible that he has even more of a profile here. Obviously, he's internationally famous, but even his British films get screened on television. And so I would imagine that the first Hitchcock film I saw would have been something like 39 Steps because it is just part of the furniture. Having said that, the first film that really made an impact on me was what, what would now seem to be an obvious choice was Vertigo when I was a teenager, I was about 17. Um, and, and now, of course, that's lauded as the greatest film of all time in sight, famous sight and sound poll. But I can't say that that's, um, my, that was my impression of it at the time. I saw it on television relatively late at night and I would have come to it through um, who knows some some sort of uh, you know favorable notice in a newspaper but I wasn't aware of its gargantuan reputation which, which it certainly had among film scholars at that time but I wasn't a film scholar I'd never been taught film uh, and I wasn't um, particularly even a film buff at that point in, in, in my late teens uh, but it, it, it did have uh, yeah, an overwhelming effect and when I went to university, I, I, you know, I, I began writing about film. I was becoming more and more interested in it. Uh, but in a way, the book didn't come out of a, uh, a particular passion for, for Hitchcock. The book came out of um, a, a kind of a second or a, just a completely different project that I, I got into when I started doing a PhD uh, quite you know, almost 10 years later after this, this exposure. So the, the book is a strange product of um, certainly an appreciation of, of, of Hitchcock, but also um, this kind of other project, which is about um, film culture in, in in Britain, which is the whole realm of um, of in a way of non mainstream cinema and of of critical work of, of film criticism and of um, the well. Film culture is the arena in which reputations are sustained. This was my, this became the subject of my PhD, and Hitchcock's place within it became a chapter of my PhD, and that was the basis um, for the book. It was a seed out of which the book grew.
1: So, um, what was your PhD? What was your PhD? Is it was it film studies or something else?
0: Yeah, it's a film studies PhD that was about. The question of how we came to take films seriously in in Britain in the 20s and 30s. Um, And that that story, so far as it's been told, it revolves around um, an institution called the Film Society. It was just called the Film Society because it was the first film society, or at least the first one in the English-speaking world. Uh, It was in London and it was... um, founded by a group of intellectuals in 1925, and attracted other intellectuals, other people who were involved in the film industry as well. And its raison d'etre was to show films that were either going to fall foul of censorship, or which couldn't find commercial distribution. And its, um, its first program, and it used, a, used major cinemas in, in the West End of London. Uh, its first program was in October 1925. And... It lasted until 1939, and but over that period, over, over the course of the 20s and 30s, um, many provincial film societies were set up in, in, in the rest of the country. And during the 1930s, specialized cinemas showing showing art, art films, imported art films from Europe on the whole, um, were established also in London and a few other places. My thesis was actually to try to move away from, from the film society and talk about what had happened before it how had say the german films that was that were so important to hitchcock how had they come into circulation in britain um, because the the mythology was that it was a responsibility of the film society and therefore of the, the sort of the social and intellectual elite which the film society represented what i discovered was a much more complicated picture involving a, a much more much more diverse range of actors who were who contributed to creating this film culture, and who and and to to you know, to to the simple task of importing these films not so simple because uh, Germany of course we had just fought uh, the Great War against Germany and so showing German films in the early 1920s was fraught with difficulty and showing Russian films Soviet films in the 1920s was almost equally fraught with difficulty and so the thesis is partly about. How those difficulties were surmounted, um, and uh, and eventually how these kind of enduring institutions of film culture, like the British Film Institute, um, came into being. So Hitchcock has um, Hitchcock has. I suppose there are two ways of talking about Hitchcock in relation to this complex of the British film culture. One is most obviously that Hitchcock has an enormous reputation as a director, and that's partly been sustained by Institutions like the BFI and magazines like Sight and Sound, which is published by the BFI. Of course, that's an international story. But Hitchcock's reputation, um, which I go into in the book, uh, his his reputation started quite early. And I think telling that story of of how that reputation developed in the 20s and 30s was was worth doing. But it's also worth talking about Hitchcock as a product of British film culture or, or not. Um, he's often written about as somebody who attended the film society and came under the influence of, of German and, and Russian films while he was at the film society. A really big, uh, really important essay for me that sort of led to me doing the PhD was by Peter Wallen, uh, the great Peter Wallen, the late Peter Wallen, who wrote a, wrote, a, wrote a couple of articles about a couple of chapters about Hitchcock in his book, Paris Hollywood. And Peter Wallen talks about Hitchcock as um, having this sort of middlebrow cultural background, um, kind of West End plays and relatively mainstream novels, including The Lodger, I would guess, that he had this middle-brow background, but through the film society, through the, the, the kind of his social superiors, I think that the phrase he uses is, uh, through that influence, Hitchcock came to have uh this kind of modernist edge to him through watching the german films and the russian films and it struck me as a very very this just struck me as as, as a really important argument a significant argument because it keys into a lot of other discussions about um british culture in in general it's a question to do with the ownership of um of, of of culture to some extent and what i found was that hitchcock well probably hadn't really been exposed to these films at the film society, to put it pretty simply. Um, and I, I don't think that the Russian influence is, is, even, is even especially significant because he can't have seen the Russian films until after he was well-established as a film director. And so the book is a, a fairly, most of the book is a fairly intense look at a year in Hitchcock's life in 1926 and 1927 as he shot The Lodger and then released the lodger and that he starts shooting it in february 1926 and it's first shown to the public in in january 1927 a lot happens in that period one thing that doesn't really happen is his exposure to german films that must have happened sooner Um, the film society begins in as i say october 1925 and so the inspiration for the book is partly a kind of a boring question of dates he can't have been influenced by the film society to make this quintessential Hitchcock film, because the dates don't add up. He must have had this seminal influence of German cinema beforehand, and which he could easily have done because the German films were commercially released in, uh, in, in Britain in, in, the early, um, in the early to mid-1920s. The so films like The Last Laugh and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Dr. Mabuse, these really important films were shown in, in ordinary cinemas, and that must be where he
1: saw them. So, obviously... How many silent films do we know for sure that he made? I know that um, The Lodger is, is definitely one of the most um, lauded from the period, and I know he was the one who called it his first true Hitchcock film, so when we talk about that as part of the title of the book, that's directly from him. Um, so what came before and what do we have anything left of anything before The Lodger?
0: I'm going to say that he made nine silent films, but I would have to check. (laughs) I'm not doing the mental arithmetic. So The Lodger is his third film. He's made two films before The Lodger. Um, And again, the the reason it's the first true Hitchcock, from his point of view, is that he felt he um, was very much invested in in the story and that it had a lot of Essentially, Hitchcockian themes and and sort of stylistic moves are there in the Lodger*. But he had made two films beforehand, uh, The Pleasure Garden and The Mountain Eagle. And they were both shot in and around um, Germany in 1925. um, There's a small studio, not even that small, there's a studio near Munich that these productions were based at um quite a lot of it was filmed on location some of them uh, some of the pleasure garden was filmed in italy and the mountain eagle I, I i it's slightly vague where it was filmed it's often it says they were filmed in the tyrol which could, could well mean italy or it could mean austria um but the pleasure garden survives um and it was relatively well regarded when it came out and um, it's not that, that there's a, a lot of um, a lot of sort of falsehoods out there about how it was only the lodger that that turned Hitchcock into a success, and that that, that isn't true. So, the Pleasure Garden is a story of um, kind of two London showgirls, and um, it has thriller elements to it. And there are plenty of aspects that you could easily say uh, point to it being a true Hitchcock movie, um, but it it just hasn't it it has never had that reputation, and also. It's been very difficult to see the pleasure garden in its original state. It was restored with um it was restored from a kind of a, a multiple number of prints um, getting on for 10 years ago by the BFI. But even that kind of restored version hasn't hasn't been shown very widely. It's not on Blu-ray, for example. But the Mountain Eagle is another story again. The Mountain Eagle is um, it's a Western. It's set in the US. Um it must have been, a, you know, a very snowy the Western winter time, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, except we have no idea because it doesn't survive. It was shown um, in 1927 um, and it, it was shown in, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it, yeah, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't junked or anything, but it didn't open in the West End of London. And that makes quite a difference. It didn't. It, it That means that its distributor didn't really have faith in it um on the whole we don't have that actually that's not recorded we don't know why it didn't uh, have a west end opening but it didn't um and so it was i mean I, I think you'd have to say that it was dumped and it didn't get a good it didn't get good reviews at the time um so we have no idea about we have no really strong idea about the mountain eagle it seems to have a wrong man plot so again that points to the the, the future of, of hitchcock as well um so actually when he made when he made the lodger, When he started shooting it um he was still very a very young man he was 26 years old but he's he had already shot two films and one of them the pleasure garden uh opened in opened in the west end during the time that he was shooting the lodger in 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 march and april 1926 and got a decent set of reviews um so the the film uh, the the title of the book first drew hitchcock slightly teasing um, in some ways, um his career as as the book shows might well have he may be may well have found success um, anyway, but I think his nostalgia for the lodger is is extremely interesting
1: well, and as you've pointed out bFI has been working hard to restore and get everything out in fact, I don't know if the um i'm not sure whether uh does do you folks over in England have access to the Criterion Channel? I know it's in the United States, but I don't know if it's over there. But they have a huge number of the BFI um, restorations of the early films that they on their both on their streaming, and then of course, as you point out, available on DVD. So people here can watch The Lodger in its pristine format, and then it's got some of the documentary material that was also on the Criterion Blu-ray, but so you get it. It's really great that, and a lot of these other Hitchcock films from the period are available on there. And it's just, and it says right at the beginning as part of the BFI um, restoration project.
0: That's really interesting. No, we don't. <laughs> yeah, I was afraid of that, do.
1: but uh, uh, that's why I have to be careful sometimes when I talk about streaming services because it can be different from one place to the next, and that makes a big difference
0: no it's it it's madly frustrating actually and uh, so some of those films some of the silent films are are well actually they're they're all they're all available as i say but not not the restored versions the Lodger, um we do have that on 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 blu ray but not on criterion blu ray because again it's it's region locked and anyway that that kind of thing but no that uh, yeah but the, the broader the broad more broadly um, yeah, the, the Lodger has continued to have this presence in, in film culture through things like official releases, like the, like the Criterion Blu-ray four or five years ago. That really does make quite a difference when that happens, when, it, when a film gets a push like that. Um, but also The Lodger gets, it, it gets shown, it gets projected, considering it's a silent British film, it gets shown relatively often. I've, I've seen it number of times on the big screen um over the course of years just because it, it does get it does get shown uh, that even even before the the bfi restoration program um but it is you know that all of these films have been greatly improved so that's 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 an interesting reversal that now they're better they're more available in in the us than than in england because the reverse was true for a long time i would say um that the, the lodger was a, Sodger was actually released in the United States in 1928, but it didn't. Um, his reputation in the U.S. only really begins with *The Man Who Knew Too Much* in *The Thirty-Nine Steps* in the mid-1930s. But back home in in, in England, he's a, you know um, kind of one of the leading film directors in the industry, so a very well-known figure.
1: Well, what's interesting is obviously he started filmmaking at the tail end, basically of the silent era. I mean, he. As you point out, he made a number of films, but in the end, um, the silent era ends 29:30 around that period of time, and he continues on pretty quickly. So this definitely probably is a perfect example of, of a silent film from him. Um, what I found, in and I'm not an expert on silent film. I've seen a lot of them, so I'm not sure how many of the things that he did in the film are unusual for silent film or that's just normal. For example, the title cards are completely uh, stylized, blinking and all kinds of things that clearly show that he was attempting to to make make use of any visual material to help tell his story.
0: Ah, I'm glad you raised them because you mentioned the cover of the book um, earlier, which I'm extremely uh, pleased and proud to have. So the cover is... What was a rejected poster for for the lodger by the american graphic designer e mcknight calfer um, so he's was, he was an american who, who moved to england um before the first world war has a very high reputation as a designer there was a a big beautiful book of his work was published um just quite recently actually by um or well in association with um an exhibition at um, organized by Cooper Union in, in in New York City and Kalfa was um, very highly regarded at the time in the 20s uh, by by the Bloomsbury set um, and by by particularly by the art critic Roger Fry and so Kalfa was enlisted in the first instance to to do these title cards for the lodger and they are um unusual and unusually good ones um, part of the story of the lodger and again why the title of the first two Hitch- Hitchcock is slightly ironic is that um we don't know right so it the the, the 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 big myth around the lodger is that the studio hated it i mean hitchcock says this himself this is a myth that comes from hitchcock's own mouth the studio saw it hated it put it on the shelf did in his words one or two things to it and then it got released and then the critics loved it and from then on his career was assured. That's that's largely a myth. But one thing that did happen was the the commissioning of E. McKnight Calfer to do these titles doesn't seem to have involved Hitchcock. The person who seems to have pushed for E. McKnight Calf was Ivan Montague, the chairman of, of the London Film Society, who is a, a young highbrow, um, who, who would have had various connections into the bloomsbury world and so Kaufer came along and did these um titles they look kind of you could say that they look kind of germanic which is appropriate for this um film which is certainly has some influence of the german expressionist cinema and some of them are um some of them are animated so they, they they make this a really distinctive and important film and then after it was after it was shown to to the critics and to the, the film trade kalfa was commissioned um to to do a poster for it but the, the distributor then rejected this poster and said no it looks you're making it look like it's a highbrow german film and that's not where we want to go with this we want this to be a successful movie um and so the, apparently the poster was was put up on display at the, at the cinema where the film was shown um but it's now in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art uh, in in New York um and yes so the yeah the titles but what yeah as I say we don't we don't have any hard evidence for Hitchcock's um we don't know either way what Hitchcock thought about these titles but clearly they're very good um and Hitchcock of course had started his start in the industry was in designing titles um so you can only really speculate about what he might have about
1: them. of course, um, for anybody who hasn't seen the film yet or don't know, don't, don't know about it as much, obviously we're talking about what we today would call a serial killer who is uh, terrifying the streets of of London uh, killing blonde women um, is what the basic beginning is and in fact, it starts right with one of the initial with one of the latest killings and obviously... By starting so strongly, um, it definitely makes the film distinctive in that sense. I mean, you know, and he, we would see that in later Hitchcock films, where, or and other directors too do that, where they immediately start the action and then back off. And so, right at the beginning, we get this this shot, and then it bu- builds right into the idea that back then, especially the newspapers and how they were so important in drumming up. Controversy and, and action and to, to get their own papers sold and that was one of the early scenes I saw that that really got me was there's a shot where all of the you know I think it's in the newspaper office and you, it's like four layers going on at the same time of of action and you can see them all and even though it's a static shot the movement and everything going on there really to me right from the beginning it grabs you as far as it's it's um, it's great use of movement.
0: Yes. I mean, we don't think about Hitchcock as being um, a political filmmaker with good reason, I think. Um, But this opening sequence, which is extraordinary, what it shows, and it, this is a sequence he was very proud of. The sequence shows the, the immediate afterward. it shows the murder essentially. And then the, the discovery of the body and then the leaking of the news or the, the transmitting of the news of this murder across the city by mostly by newspapers, but also by the, the new medium of, of radio and these kind of illuminated uh, scrolling signs like you would see in, in Piccadilly Circus. And none of the major characters in the film are in this early sequence. It's, it's remarkable. It's, it's kind of a montage sequence. So this is a part of the point of saying that he wasn't influenced by the Russians. Is that, well? How did he come to make this this montage sequence? Um, but yes, it does show the, the the power of the press, and it shows the it, it's filmed on location at the the offices of the Evening Standard, which is one of the major London newspapers, and Hitchcock's first ever cameo in one of his own films, which of course is what another reason why this is the first true Hitchcock is that he makes this cameo. He is playing um, an editor at the newspaper, kind of directing the, the processes of the newspaper, which I think is interesting if you, if you want to think about film as a film as a medium of manipulation, and of course newspapers as a medium of manipulation, because what happens is that people get, people are terrified of the serial, I mean, of course they would be, but people get terrified of the serial killer, and so the blonde women are wearing dark wigs and so, so on.
1: yeah it was it, it 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 he told so much of the story visually, obviously, because there was no audio. And it just shows right from the beginning that, in a way, his initial work in silent films helped him because he had to tell his story visual visually with minimal amounts of text. So um some of these early scenes, you know what's going on. It's pretty obvious going from start to finish that this is the story. From the kill and of course he plays around with time and everything obviously it doesn't go to the newspaper that quickly but literally from the minute the murder is found out to the latest murder until it comes out in the newspapers and gets transmitted it's he shows how quickly it it spread is and it, clearly we've been put right in the middle of the story too because at this point there'd been pri- prior murders so anyway I found that uh just right from the beginning how Audacious. I'm going to use that word because I think it's a fair one. The way he showed it. Now, obviously, as we say, it, it's based on the on a, the, the storyline is of an unknown killer, uh, and then soon after, the lodger pay, played by Ivor Novello, no, no, no Ivor Novello, who I I don't the you know obviously he did another film with Hitchcock later, but he obviously must have been a, a well known British actor at the time since he gets his name above the title
0: yeah ivan novello is a he so he was he, he certainly was a, a very famous actor he came to prominence as a songwriter um with keep the home fires burning which was a, an anthem of, of the first world war um and then he was Who's re- really a, a central figure in lot of the West End demimonde, let's put it that way, that he was a writer but also a performer um, and so involved in lots of West End productions which aren't necessarily plays, they'll be kind of uh, review shows. And then he goes into movies and some of his, he, you know, he's in he's in film directed by D.W. Griffith, um, he's in French films as well. Uh, and and I wouldn't, on, on having said that, I, I, I don't know if he was really cutting through until he made a uh, uh, until he made, until he co-wrote a play called *The Rat*, and then starred in a film of it. And *The Rat*, he plays. This is in 1924. He plays a hoodlum of the French underworld, who they were called Apaches. And you kind of see them in other facets of 1920s um, culture in general, movies and plays. And the, *The Rat* was something that he he co-wrote with his friend Constance Collier, who's another kind of West End figure who. She eventually, you know, she, she's an actress sometimes and she's in Hitchcock's The Rope, a long time, not The Rope, in Rope, a long time later. But anyway, he writes this play called The Rat, co-writes a play called The Rat, and he gets laughed out of town by the critics. This, the idea of, uh, of of a novella was a, a kind of a ruffian because he's not at all. He's sort of a very handsome, smooth-looking guy. Um, the critics find the entire thing a, a concoction Um, But he has a very, very loyal audience, not of perhaps traditional theatre goers, but rather of film goers and especially women film goers. They go to this, they go. They flock to see this play, The Rat. It doesn't open in the West End, it opens in Brighton, um, I think to make a point that he doesn't rely on on the fashionable West End audience. And then that gets turned into a, a film in 1925 by Hitchcock's, well, I've used the word mentor in the book, Maybe that's, it's a tricky one. Hitchcock came up in the, in the industry as the assistant to a director called Graham Cuts or Jack Graham Cuts, whose name changes. And Hitchcock always bad mouthed Cutts in, in later interviews, Hitchcock and Alma Revel, um, who was also Hitchcock's wife, who was also part of the filmmaking team at the studio that Cuts was the chief director at Gainsborough. Um, and all this is a bit rough on, on, on Cuts. But he directed Novello in *The Rat* in 1925, and it was a sensationally successful film. And it was kind of after this that, that Novello was cast in *The Lodger*. So, yeah, he was he was probably the biggest male star in in British cinema. Um, but at the same time, he kind of harbored ambitions to be taken seriously um, as uh, as a stage actor, primarily. And he his fame. His fame probably is largely confined to uh, to these aisles. his name lives on the there's a songwriting award each each year the Ivan Novello award and it's, that's still a big deal so he kind of has this yeah presence which the others in the film do not
1: right i yeah i know that it's clear that Hitchcock figured out right from the beginning he was going to have to at least somewhat disguise his his as you say his his charisma and everything, because we first see him walking in, you know, all covered up. And so you can tell that uh, right from the beginning, Hitchcock figure is, is able to make him a mysterious figure and such. But before we go to, I don't really want to, I'm not trying to go all over the place, although we're already talking about parts of the beginning. I want to back up a little bit as one of the things that I find interesting whenever I talk to someone about a particular film in particular is what kind of sources did you use to pull together a lot of your information? I mean, obviously you were able to detail in pretty good uh, uh, amount the making and some of the issues at the time the film was made and released. So what kind of sources uh, were you able to find to help you with this?
0: Mostly, I mean, this book has been a long time in the writing, Mostly, I get my information by going through old newspapers. Um, and when I started the book, that was a process that was really going through them page by page, or scrolling through a microfilm page by page, um, which is is laborious, not very much fun. Um, but you get not only do you, you get information that's not out there but it's also you it's quite useful to get a kind of a flavor of the times through newspapers um you you see what else is going on and you start to make connections and it probably did influence the way that i wrote the book that uh, the book does try and situate hitchcock in 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 in, in post-war england um so that was the main source would have been then and of course over time newspapers have been continue to be digitized and searchable, made searchable online. Um, and some of the major ones, The Times and The Guardian, um, were done probably sort of it became available to me anyway ten years ago or so. Um, but vastly more is done all the time. and even <laughs> it's literally in the last week of of, of, of writing the book, um, one of the major British trade news, film trade newspapers, but this is, there are there were four um, weekly newspapers covering the film trade they're all quite substantial um, paper objects uh, the major one of them kinematograph weekly was put online by the British Library yeah uh, about a year ago uh, which if, if that had happened earlier it would have made it would have made my life easier but also kind of a lot more sedentary and boring i quite like going to libraries and not just looking through stuff online um but yeah primarily newspapers but there were some archive um some quite important archival discoveries that were the I guess the genesis for for the book archive discoveries that contradicted what we thought that we knew
1: about hitchcock i am a retired librarian Uh, from Cleveland and I was in public libraries. And of course we, back then when I started and I don't even know what the status of any of it is now since I'm long away from there, but we had a newspaper room and literally early on, it was mostly just bound or loose newspapers. And then eventually things started to get microfilmed. So it wasn't unusual to walk in and see people going through old newspapers, you know, literally page by page through a microfilm machine or sometimes even paper and of course, depending on what they were studying, and especially Cleveland, these may have been the only copies of some of these newspapers that, that that were even available. So I do understand that fully. And I'll be honest, I've used some of the digitized newspapers online, which show the full pages. And to me, I find that a little bit difficult to work with. But maybe it's because I just don't have a lot of experience doing it. But I, I so I fully understand what what the process was like for what you were doing. Um. What made you, I mean, and I know we're sort of talking backwards, but that's okay. Um, what made you to choose the lodger to be the topic of your study? I know we talked a lot about that it was a PhD study, but it started that way. It's part of your PhD, it then built off. But what struck you about the lodger that you felt was a very good example to use?
0: It was because of the story. It, it, yes,
1: I, I didn't choose...
0: The lodger I didn't exactly choose it on its strength as a film, although um I think that with the possible exception of the Manxman, it is his you know it is his best silent film but it the my impetus for writing didn't really come through that at all. It was quite a the, the the thing that led me to write about it was more to do with the story that is usually told about the making of the lodger, which. Um, in in you know, my initial emphasis was discovering that this story, which Hitchcock t- tells himself on many occasions, and it's in all of the books about Hitchcock, it continues to be re- sort of repeated over and over again. It was my discovery that this story was ninety percent wrong. That's that was that 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 is that was the that really yeah that 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 led me to try to tell a different story about Hitchcock. Um, to to try and find out what had really happened. So that story is this one of, of the film being hated by the, you know, rejected by the studio, a couple of changes being made, and then it going on to great success. I mean, that is what the story is. And even if, if you say it out loud, it sounds slightly murky. And what I discovered was um, an extremely complex, <laughs> extremely complex reality, but at the bottom of which was um most of that not being true. It, it, it has to be kind of unfolded o- over the over the length of the book. But there were there were there were there were materials in the archive that um helped me or you know that cast a doubt on on the story and there were definite and there was you know definite information in the newspapers as well. So the the sto- the, the, the story in the form told by Ivan Montague who's the chairman of the film society who was brought in to help edit it, he says it wasn't just that The Lodger was um, rejected by the, by the studio. His two earlier films were also being held up. They hadn't been, you know, they hadn't been released. And uh, Hitchcock had made three films, therefore, that had not been released. And that, you know, he's, very, he's a young man and his career was in the balance. And so Montague's intervention, his re editing of the film, not only saved the, saved the Lodger, but it also saved Hitchcock's career. And oddly, that's already quite a big kind of inflated claim, but oddly the, the the claim gets kind of ever more inflated through through publication. And so that Montague not only does he re-edit it, but he brings the influence of Sergei Eisenstein to bear on the film and things like this, because later on Montague had an association with, with Eisenstein. So um yeah, the impetus was it's quite a, I mean it sounds not necessarily a noble aim but the the the, the initial emphasis was to try and it was was kind of to debunk the story, but eventually it became to to tell a different story and to tell what I think is a more truthful story where that involves having a much wider perspective on how Hitchcock became Hitchcock um and how the course of his career developed um it's not such an underdog story, but it has kind of quite, um, I would say, quite unexpected twists and turns, nevertheless.
1: So, obviously, one of the stories, and and you talk about this right in the introduction, you, you you start to pull pull out some of the things right from the beginning, and the idea that the film was shelved by the studio and suddenly wasn't going to be shown, and then suddenly the studio made some changes, and then they released it, and everybody liked it. Uh, that's the initial story that uh, you talk about, right from the very beginning, and clearly, as you're pointing out, there's the story itself is is not, uh, you know, there's there's more to the story than than that basics. It almost sounds like they're saying they saved Hitchcock, the studio did right from the beginning, when that turns out not really to be the case.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the story is yeah the the. the, the <laughs> even then the, st- the more the more you delve into the story the more iffy it sounds which is why i, I delved into it so the story is that it's, the studio didn't like it and so they brought in ivan montague to do the re-edit and ivan montague who's he's barely out of university he runs this film society that shows highbrow films and so the idea is is we are, is mostly ivan montague's version of the story that we have he says oh it was on it was on the logic of, you know, uh, send a thief to catch a thief. They thought, this film was too highbrow, therefore we'll bring in this really highbrow guy and, and he'll fix the problem. But in a way, uh, I mean, I, I think it, the reason that story kind of um, takes hold and catches, and like I say, you know, this isn't an obscure... Uh, I'm not picking a fight with a kind of obscure argument in an old book. This always gets rehashed in documentaries about Hitchcock. I think it's because it's a silent film it's a British film it's it's, uh it's from a very long time ago and when when most books about Hitchcock get written it's kind of this is building up to the main event which is obviously his beloved um Hollywood films and I, I don't resent that because I think those films do have a more general appeal But if you decide to focus in on what like what happened in the 1920s what really happened then um these kinds of stories which um these kind of slightly improbable stories that we do enjoy um, when it comes to writing about film. You have to look past the, the improbable stories, but they get, I mean, it's a fairly normal part of, um, I would say about film history. Just the other day, to give an example, there was, there was an interview, this went viral on, or you know, it went fairly viral on, on, on Twitter. There was an interview with Mel Brooks, and you know, he, he tells a great anecdote about how did you get away with such and such in the film? in Blazing Saddles and he said oh well what I did was when you know when the when the studio boss was upset with what I'd done I just said yes to him in the moment and then didn't follow up I didn't go through with it so the, the boss would say you've got to cut that you've got to cut that line you can't have it and Mel Brooks would say yeah yeah I'll do it and then just not do it because you know the studio boss has got a lot on his plate and there are similar sto- I mean there are similar stories I think about Hitchcock and, and Psycho but anyway we all love those stories and they're great fun." And there must be, you know, usually a grain of truth in them. But I think really, uh, there's probably a little bit more to them, um, and and that's that's kind of what I was doing with 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 the Hitchcock story here, was to to spoil people's fun.
1: One of the other interesting things to me early on was how involved, right from the start, his at the time girlfriend, fiance, but then later wife Alma, she was always important to his. To his film life and obviously real life and right from the beginning what kind of what, what did she what, was her, what did she bring to the whole process?
0: Um, with this one I mean so she, it's a good question because I think it's it, one of the answers to it is, needs to be explored in more depth she was his assistant director on, uh, on, on The Lodger and also on the, on the previous two films her background; she had quite a um, um, like a lot of people who entered the industry in the nineteen tens. She had quite a wide variety of experience in the film business. She joined the film business before Hitchcock in the mid nineteen tens when she's still you know a teenager. Um, she lives near the near, near a film studio um, at Twickenham, and uh, which is a suburb of, of London. And so she she you know she she even acts at, at one point so her main experience though and what she specializes in is editing but it's a bit more there's more to it than that Um, it's that she will be on the set as um doing continuity which means she has to observe um observe everything that's going on and, and make sure that there is continuity between shots and so um of course a, a any film in a, any scene in a film will be made up of a number of different shots and we need to make sure that the um that the actors are in the same positions from one shot to the next and that they're you know that if they've got a drink that it needs to be at the right level between shots and all these kind of famous things that you notice if you pay too much attention and obviously more important things like their, their costume and, and, and hair and so on because you might shoot um on a, you know, you might shoot the rest of the scene on a different day. So her role is being on set, observing that, and also she's involved in the, in, in the editing of the film as well. And I think that that's um, part of what she is bringing to, um, to The Lodger. We don't have any information about, on, there's, no, there's no credit for who did the initial editing of The Lodger. And, and I think the assumption has to be that it's Alma Rebel probably, and Alfred Hitchcock, but there is cut footage from the film which is shown to a journalist while the film is still being shot before Ivan Montague's involvement. And, of course, the idea is that the when the film is first shown to the studio, um, they don't like it. So a film has to exist. So I, 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 I strongly assume that that's, that's her role on it. And when Ivan Montague does make his changes to the film, one of the things that that led me to write what I wrote was uh, a piece of communication from very late, very, very late in the editing, um, which refers to Miss Revel being the kind of the point person for the editing of the film. Ivan Montague has an intermediary who is in touch with, with Alma Revel about the editing of the film so i i I would assume that that's her primary responsibility but of course also she um she's she's a film writer um and she has credits on numerous hitchcock films as a writer and um yeah you assume that she's she's in the mix certainly when the film is being being conceptualized so always um on, on all of his films, a completely central figure. Um, and so, yeah, he, he proposes to her um, about two months before the lodger starts shooting and they get married um, a couple of months after its
1: first screening. So, obviously, w- w- back then, I mean, I don't know, this is one of those things about silent movies um, and, and, and the, the movie industry at the time. Obviously, as we've already pointed out, it, it got very good reviews when it came out. Um, did he get mentioned, did Hitchcock himself get mentioned in the reviews for his skill in directing? I mean, I don't know what the reviews would have been like back for silent films, whether the, techni- the technical folks and the, and the other you know people who were in, behind the cameras, whether they received the kind of uh, accolades that nowadays is, is normal. Yeah,
0: they, they they absolutely did. Uh, I think one of the strangest myths about um, our perception of, of film criticism and film culture is that you know Cahiers du Cinema, the French critics of the fifties, kind of almost invented the idea of, of the auteur, as a, or the you know the director as author, which is I don't know, it's, it's, it's just it's just about as wrong as you can be, um, and so. The director's name would be used for publicity purposes even in the 1920s in some cases. And so that's true for Hitchcock. When his first film, The Pleasure Garden, opens in April 1926, there are adverts saying it's by Britain's youngest director. And there's precedent for this, especially with Cecil B. DeMille, who Hitchcock very much admired. Um so yeah, the director's skill was frequently noticed. Um, Hitchcock was, was seen as, as, um, very promising, actually, even before anybody had, um, seen much of his films, you know, he's Alfred Hitchcock of whom much is expected is a phrase that I think turns up in more than one article about the making of the film. Um, he was friendly with, with some film critics. And so they, they all discuss him and his, Um, even to some extent, his persona. Um, Ivor Montague was also, apart from many other things, he was a film critic for The Observer. And, you know, he writes in his review of The Pleasure Garden, uh, Hitchcock said his best when he's showing a world that he knows, which is kind of lower middle class London family. Um, And so for, for, for Montague to have written that, he had some sense of the director's persona. And um, of course he didn't have the um the full the full Hitchcock persona of later decades as a practical joker and, and so on. Um but no for sure Hitchcock's Hitchcock's skill, his stylistic choices, these are noticed by um
1: by, by critics in the 1920s. And I, there is just so much about the film that you know now we can look at it and say, of course this must be uh, it, you can see why it would be considered to be such a classic early Hitchcock film because of we have the wrong man concept. we have the uh the trouble the person getting into more and more trouble and being saved at the last minute and all kinds of things like that that become normal. Uh, I know it's not it the the film was based on a book uh how much uh, how much changes were made? to make the film, or did some of that come through from the original book?
0: A lot of changes, and it's a fascinating development, I would say. The novel by Mary Bellock-Lounds is um, it's told very much from the point of view of a landlady who takes in this lodger, who she starts to suspect is, is a serial killer, so the basic situation is, is there, um but what the difference is partly that in the in the book she doesn't tell anyone because she doesn't i'm slightly uh, this is a slightly cartoonish version she doesn't tell anyone because she doesn't want to lose the the income i mean it's a consideration because she's not sure he's a serial killer and the novel is almost entirely set within the house um and not to give it away but the in the book he really is the serial killer it's pretty obvious that he's a serial killer and so it proves to be and so the the film is inspired by the novel but it's also inspired by a play a version of the novel that Hitchcock said he saw in in 1915 or 1916 it was a West End play and it was inspired by the novel but it's a comedy It's, it's very very different from the novel in lots and lots of ways and so the film is a strange three-way split between the novel, the play, and inventions that come from Hitchcock and his screenwriter Elliot Stannard. And some of those are um the most interesting, from the point of view of Hitchcock studies, kind of the most interesting things in it. So one thing it anticipates is um, Rebecca and, and, and Vertigo, which that's not in, that's not in the novel or the play this idea of a, a young woman being uh, kind of made over to look like another woman. Um, but I can't say any more because of spoilers, but that's in, that's in the film and it's not in the source material It has to come from Hitchcock and Stannard or possibly Alma Revel.
1: Well, and of course, so much of it is like any film, it's in the, the visual aspect of how you present the material. Obviously, Right from the beginning, the first time we see the lodger, he is clearly being shown as being um, sinister. And even in later scenes where we finally see him smile a little bit and seem less, you know, calm down a little bit, there's always the strange stuff. He's got things locked up, nobody knows what's there. And then, of course, we have the fine, you know, the later on in the scenes where certain things get explained and um, you can, he completely changes, you know, into a more. Um, sympathetic character because of why he supposedly is where he is. So, all of these things um, shows you know Hitchcock clearly disguising the character as best as he can until he gets to a point where he wants to go to the next step of the story. Yes,
0: I mean I think it's okay to say that it's in lots of respects quite a crude performance, or quite, sometimes quite a jarring performance the way it goes from um it kind of could be a murderer to seeming um uh, totally unthreatening but that that does sort of anticipate um rebecca as well where laurence olivier's character is this brooding byronic romantic figure who um again the question is is well it's a, it's a very similar scenario where in the novel he actually is a murderer. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the breeding and the breeding comes from that and his secret is that he is a murderer. Um, and, and that and they have to fudge it in. It's, it's pretty quite an English expression, but they have to to fudge that in the um, in 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 the film of Rebecca so that he's not quite a murderer. It's kind of it, it's okay what he did um but in the lodger there's no way that he can be a murderer so you have to have a totally transformed ending um and so novello has to be um not not a murderer and that's from but that's from the play i'd I say um hitchcock would tell the story that well we couldn't have ivan novello be be the murderer as you know he, that can work but from a censorship point of view you can't have a murderer getting away with it um and so he was he was in he was complaining about that i suppose in interviews but like i say that is that's that's how it is in the play as well um, so it's not so i don't know i think he might have
1: been perfectly satisfied with the the ending at the time we'll, we'll never know although it's funny that it's probably the least satisfying part of the film as far as i'm concerned the fact that the the, the killer the actual murderer gets captured off screen We only know it because somebody says, Oh, they caught him. Oh, (laughs) I mean, it's like, that is, you know, I'm not sure where that came from in the overall storyline, but it maybe it goes back to the play where it would be virtually impossible to show it if on a stage, unless the murder just happened to show up to to the house, but to the the boarding house, but it it is sort of strange. It's a strange way to, uh, to do it. I found, uh, Mm And it and like I say, I would consider it to be the least satisfying part of the film, but that's not really Hitchcock where unless it was somehow they had to come out, come right out and show that he wasn't, and that's how they did it. It, it was just like, What? <laughs> it's easy to miss.
0: I, yeah, no, I agree. I mean I think in some ways I think the I think it I think having the murderer caught off screen and the that, that's to some extent I do find that to be a kind of that's Hitchcock's sense of humor, I would say and also what, you know if looking if you look at that scene in detail what happens is there's a big crowd of people who are who are going to lynch the lodger because they think he's a whore and then they they're persuaded to to stop and the reason they stop is not because the police are saying don't do it it's because the one of the newspaper boys comes along with a new edition of the evening standard which says we found the actual murderer. And so the, the public trusts the newspapers more than the police. And I, I think that's also part of it's also a kind of Hitchcock joke. You should always remember that he doesn't, I mean, <laughs> his actual comedies are not funny, I I, I would say. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Trouble with Harry. Um, I, I can't really I can't really get on with them at all. But he does have a sense of humor and 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 that's sort of what it is. But the real, I mean to me, the really, the really most grim bit is uh, the right at the end, after the climax of the film, which is that the, which it, again it is kind of from, from, from the play, which is um, the lodger turns out to be an aristocrat with um, one of these kind of very movie big houses. It would be impossible to have a house of this scale in, in central London. This, but this house seems to look over, um, kind of overlooks Big Ben and the Thames and whatnot. Um, and the, the landlord and lady. Um, I think it's suggested that they go into they become they're sort of an impoverished landlord and lady but they they're they're rescued by becoming the servants of of their former lodger and where and their daughter becomes you know his girlfriend or bride um it's yeah i mean it's as an ending it's a bit like suspicion um fifteen years later with there's a Carrie grant Joan Fontaine movie which has a lot of similarities with the lodger. Um, which, yeah, is just one of those famous, that's a disappointing ending <laughs> movies.
1: Yeah. It, unfortunately, as you point out, this is the kind of thing that Hitchcock deals with his entire career. Um, I recently, or recently, about a year ago now, I think, interviewed Mark Glancy, who wrote a book on Cary Grant. And he talks a lot about suspicion and how it was made and some of the issues and such, and including that kind of thing. And it clearly shows that, um, uh, Hitchcock continued to run into these kind of issues, especially during the period of the time, you know, his major period, at least until we get into the late fifties where things get changed and redone. And, and unfortunately he runs into issues both with studios and sensor boards and so on. And, and, and I think even the idea back then that he couldn't, that Ivor Novella couldn't be the murderer because, and, and, and get away with it. And, um, some of those changes i suspect uh were related to all that
0: yeah yeah um I, I don't know whether it was precisely for reasons of censorship but yeah the the play also couldn't countenance having the the murderer get away with it um and the, the um, stage plays were even more subject to um, censorship, well, ra- well it rather, it was a more official system of censorship enforced in, in on the stage um, uh, through the Lord Chamberlain's office. But anyway, yeah, the, the same, the same, same, thing had afflicted the um, the play. And um, but rather than rather than botch the ending of the play, the play just presents itself as being largely an out-and-out comedy. In the play, it's not very important who who the murderer is. The film is it's a more complicated hybrid. It is actually interested in, um, it, you know, it, it is a thriller and it is meant to be, this, the, the the prospect of the serial killer coming back is, is meant to be, you know, scary, which mm-hmm. is not really the case with the play.
1: Well, we've talked for over an hour now and I feel like we've still only scratched the surface of the book. I think there's no question, and in, in addition to trying to get rid of some of the myths about this particular film, which also helps with some of the other myths about Hitchcock, I think it's a great description of the making of the film, and which is an interesting thing all by itself, given that while much of the film takes place in a set piece, a set, you know, a couple of rooms in a rooming house, the outdoor scenes, um, almost all at night, um, make add to the mood of the entire film. And I think it just proves how well. Hitchcock could understand from the beginning how to get suspense and and other kinds of important things that would go throughout his career. I hope that uh, when the book comes out, it uh, gets you know it gets looked at by Hitchcock people. It's gotten some good, very good early reviews, which is great. And I just think it's just one more great book. I mean, it seems like you think could we write? I think I said this about to some other author about their Hitchcock book. I says, could we have another Hitchcock book? And here's another one. And and yet you found something that was uh, worthwhile writing about that hadn't been written about before. And I think it just proves that there's plenty of other um, writing out there and information. And hopefully people will follow some of your tracks and and check some of the sources that you used. And that's one of the reasons why I always worry ask about sources. So as I say, I hope... Um, the book does well, as I say, and I, and I really appreciate the time you spent with me about it. The book, as we've said, is The First True Hitchcock, The Making of a Filmmaker by Henry K. Miller, who I've been speaking with, for University of California Press. It's scheduled for release in early January of 2022, but uh, as I say, I hope people will reach out for it, and I really want to thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed being here. Thank you. My great thanks to Henry for his time. The Lodger is available in a variety of locations for viewing, and I hope you will take the time to watch it. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.